Welcome to the audiobook version of McTrump, Scene 2. Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more. Hilary always sleeps. She's sick. Not I. I sleep not. I tweeteth. Nor do I sniff. Twas my microphone that failed. Not I, McTrump, whose hands are huge. They conspire against me. Lies, lies, all lies. Maureen? Hmm? So, so, so is it time to start? Time to start, Dan? Yeah, but, um, but what what are you listening to? Oh, an audiobook. Oh, yeah, audiobooks, Dan, they're great. I'm trying to listen to uplifting literature to counteract this election cycle. This is Shakespeare. But, M- Maureen, this, this tape case says Mac Trump. Oh, don't say the name out loud. It's bad luck. We call it the Orange Play. Uh, Maureen, I'm no, I'm definitely not a student of classic literature, but I don't think that's real. Didn't you do it in high school? No. Uh, we did Hamlet. We did uh-huh. uh, Twelfth Night. Right. But no. Hamlet, no. Twelfth Night, Mac Trump, no. Orange Play. Okay. No. All right. All right. It's the story of a man who's trying to become king. Mostly, he writes these little messages in the middle of the night about how everyone lies about him. And he also does it, he also does it by lying and just a lot of really weird stuff. It's really spooky. It's really good. No, I mean, you are, you are literally describing what Donald Trump did this week. Mm, I don't think so. I mean, this is, this is Shakespeare. I mean, he says tweeteth. Yeah. Oh, no, Shakespeare invented a lot of words. Uh, I just, I don't know, Maureen. Well, I have some other books. You might, there's some other books here you might like. You have a son, right? Son? Yeah. Because he, yeah, he, yeah. might, he might like this yeah, one. Yeah, he's Try, 11. Here. Perfect, perfect. Listen to this one. Welcome to the audiobook version of Harry Potter and the Basket of Deplorables. You've put on weight, Hermione, Harry said, while eating a chocolate frog. It's a real problem. Okay, Maureen, have you spent the last week writing fake Donald Trump versions of classic works? And then, and then have you actually had them recorded into audiobooks as some way of making this election bearable? I, I don't think so. I mean, because you do, you do write books. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think. I think you're supposed to be writing a book right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- and these books, they don't, they don't seem right. In what way? In any way. Okay, I don't, I don't know. Here, try this one. This one is just plain history, Dan, and you can't rewrite history. Welcome to the collected speeches of Abraham Lincoln. Am I right? (sighs) Okay, that one is definitely not real. Abraham Lincoln was a really complicated guy. Maureen, I really think this election might be getting to you. I think I'm fine, Dan. I think I'm better than fine. Dan, I was awake at 3 a.m. listening to my audiobooks. And 
would a person who wasn't fine be awake at 3 a.m. listening to their audiobooks, Dan? Because, <laughs> Dan, if you needed me, I'd be awake, you know, pacing around with my phone. That's someone who's okay, Dan. That's what, that's what winners do. They stay awake all the time with their phones, Dan, watching and waiting and listening and ready to act. And I'm no sleeper, Dan. I'm someone who's ready to push that button at 3 a.m. if you need me to. Ma- Maureen, what button? What Any you... button, Dan. Any button, Dan. It doesn't matter. Any button. Here, just listen to Abraham Lincoln again. I wear a huge hat. Huge. It says... Make civil wars uncivil again also. Maureen, I think that... I think no, that you're, no, you're, you're unwell, Dan. You're unwell. Just listen. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers said, check out sex tape. Maureen, you got to snap out of this. None of this is real. Oh, yeah? Says who? Welcome to Says Who, the podcast that isn't a podcast. It's a coping strategy. I'm Maureen Johnson. And I'm Dan Sinker, and... Oh, God, sorry. Oh. Oh. Oh, Dan, is the baby is the baby still keeping you awake? Oh, no, actually, he's had a better week. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Uh, I instead was up all night because the New York Times released Donald Trump's taxes from 1995, and it turned out he lost billion dollars that year and may never have paid taxes since i stayed up all night waiting for him to tweet you stayed up all night it's just the other night he was up all night tweeting about miss universe and it was the best feeling maureen it was like it was like a 140-character, presentless version of Christmas morning, and I just wanted to capture that feeling again. Well, why don't you just set a notification or just, you know, not care? Uh, I just, I mean, honestly, I wanted to be the first person to write delete your account when he did it, and I thought maybe I could be the one to finally get him to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Hillary Clinton did that once, and he didn't do it. So I'm not sure anyone has ever deleted their account because someone asked them to. That that can't be right. Anyway, I am a little bit sleepy today. And it turned out it was kind of a lame response from him, and he didn't even post it till 7, so I kind of wasted my whole Yeah, night. you know, lame, lame post or not, I, the guy lost a, a billion dollars running casinos. A billion dollars a million dollars yesterday my dryer broke and i had to go to the laundromat and i lost eight dollars in the laundry and i thought my life was over but wait a second maureen you weren't you up all night listening to those audiobooks what 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 audiobooks the trump ones that we literally just they were the intro to this whole thing. You remember Mac Trump, Harry Potter, and the Basket of Deplorables? <laughs> Dan, you really need more sleep. You don't sleep. Some some strange stuff happens to you. Wait, Ma- Maureen, but... Oh, no. You have to sleep, Dan. See, I have a trick. I freeze my phone into a big block of ice every night, and I can't get it at it again until it thaws. So you really need to stay away from your phone during the night. That's the key to good sleep. Morning, but I, yeah. Ah, uh, uh, Dan, uh, I've never been more clear in my thinking. I can hear colors. 
You know, of course, what was extra funny about the taxes story was that whoever sent it to the New York Times put Trump Tower as the return address. Uh, You can put anything as a return address. It doesn't matter. Maybe it came from there. You know, maybe it didn't. It doesn't. It's irrelevant. What's so great about it is that it's just this little touch that's designed to suggest that it came from Trump Tower, to suggest the calls are coming from inside the house. It's like when little kids play that game where they just kind of put their hand near each other and they go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Okay, Maureen, take a breath. (laughs) Just take a deep, take a deep, calming (laughs) breath. Take it back. <gasps> yeah. Just, just take it with me. <sighs> there you go. Yeah. Maureen, there's still a month in the election. We have two more debates to get through. Plus, this week is the VP debate, which, listeners, by the time you hear this, has already happened. But the Commission for Presidential Debates was rude enough to schedule it outside of our recording schedule. And plus, they gave us these bad mics. So, you know, the moderator is biased against us. (laughs) But, I mean, it is just the VP debate. And who remembers the VP debates? Who even remembers who these candidates are? Uh, Maureen, I'm pretty sure they have the same name, right? I think it's Matt or maybe it's Steve. I, I don't know. One is a garbage human being. I remember that. And the other is apparently invisible. And I'm pretty sure they had a fine debate and whatever they said was completely overshadowed by day four of Trump digging himself further into a hole about his taxes. Which came from Trump Tower. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Okay, Maureen. Maureen, 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 breathe. 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 Everyone listening, breathe. Breathe. We've got a month. A month is a long time. This past week of weight gain and sex tapes and billion-dollar losses, if this week tells us anything, it's that it's only going to get crazier from here. So everyone, breathe. Breathe, breathe. Go outside, take a walk. It's okay to just take a walk and listen to some music or an audio book. Okay, what's with this audio book? Obsession, Dan. What is this? I don't think that's me, but just escape for a little while. Take a break. This whole election insanity will be here for you when you get back. And we'll be here no matter what. And we'll be back with our guest in just a moment. it says who we try to dig a little further into this complete mess that is the 2016 election and like a sullen teenager that's dropped on our doorstep in a sitcom from 1983 we're stuck with it so we may as well understand it better over the last few episodes we've looked at some historical context for the election we've learned how polling works we've even gotten to know some of the states that are really in play this year one thing we haven't really gotten to is the people behind these votes so today we're thankful to have farai chadea with us 
Farai has covered every election since 1996 for outlets including CNN, NPR, and currently 538. Her most recent book is The Episodic Career, out now from Atria Books. This election cycle, Fry has been diving deep into voter demographics, traveling the country to get to know the voters for 538 web series and podcast The Voters, which is located at 538.com slash the voters. And thanks so much for joining us, Fry. Now, can you tell us who are these people? Well, I mean, the voters who we chose, we chose nine demographics that represented basically three states of play, you know, strong GOP support, strong Democratic support, and shrug. Um, So, for example, this week we're going to be releasing a shrug category, which is white suburban women. And they really have been a swing demographic, so voting primarily for Obama in 2008, primarily for Romney in 2012, Um, And also before that, in 2004, primarily voting Republican as well. So it's been flipping back and forth, not every year, but at least every couple years. And this year, um, Republican suburban white women are definitely uh, torn over Trump. You know, there's this issue of party loyalty, but we spoke with a woman who's just not going to vote because she's a staunch Republican, but she just can't take Donald Trump. Are they the electorate you think has the most potential to swing this year? Well, you know, we get into a bunch of different demographics. So I think white suburban women have always been paid attention to, um, in part because this is a, you know, a group of voters that goes to the polls reliably. Um, Women tend to be later deciders than men, so remain persuadable further into the race. But when you look at, um, you know, I would argue in a state like Florida, Cuban Americans, who we're, we're not specifically covering, but we had thought about it, Cuban Americans are definitely in play because Cuban Americans for years have tended to vote Republican, and that's changed over time with younger generations. But this year, Cuban Americans by and large are just really fed up with Donald Trump. Then you have um, millennial voters of color, Black, Latino, Asian American, they're tepid on Clinton. So there's a whole bunch of different groups that are behaving in ways that are going to change this race. I mean, so you've been you've been covering presidential elections for for quite a while. And obviously, I think like the Republican suburban women is is sort of what have been called soccer moms, right, for a long time. And, And obviously, there's always sort of demographic stuff in play. But kind of what what's different? to you this year uh, in terms of of demographics? Well, this year, I think that it's been a little unusual in that we've seen a lot of pushback against the Democratic Party by people who saw themselves in the Sanders camp and on the other side also by more conservative, um, you know, blue-collar Democrats. So it's been a bit of a I think that's one reason why you're seeing Clinton's unfavorability ratings where they are is because there's a little bit of an ideological squeeze play where you've got younger voters who really want her to move left and you've got kind of centrist or right-leaning Democrats who want her to move right and also want trade protectionism, which is why essentially she changed her position on the TPP. So there's it's it's definitely i mean it's it's just in some ways it's less showy but it's just as weird a year for the democrats as it is for the republicans it seems like this year um weird is the only 
<laughs> weird, volatile. I mean, just this week has been so volatile. Um, just to that point, what kind of issues do you think are impacting groups of voters the most, like evangelicals, for instance? There doesn't seem to be a lot out there that's appealing to them about Donald Trump. And yet, well, de- they're definitely, for yeah, with evangelicals, you see such strong support for Donald Trump, despite the fact that people are not incredibly um, passionate about him, but it's all about the Supreme Court. You know, people really feel as if they have got to, you know, hold on to the Supreme Court as, um, as something that is conservative or conservative leaning. And for that reason, you see people deciding who really were upset with Trump that they have to vote for him. And I think that really speaks to the nature of a two-party system. There are a lot of people, in some ways, this election is not only bizarre, um, it's also a test of the two-party system. And can a, a country of more than 300 million people really exist within two ideological silos? I would argue not. I was reading your piece on the evangelicals. I believe they were in North Carolina. The uh, people South that you, Carolina. South Carolina mm-hmm. that you spoke yep. to. And I wondered how they might come out of people that really seem so connected to their church come out of this week when the stories have been sex tapes, pornos. Uh, <laughs> this this is the week where it's all kind of melted. In, yeah, n- in, not to mention tithing is under the table when you don't pay taxes. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it's... I have a lot of empathy. Like I really liked the couple who I interviewed, um, the evangelical couple. And I, as someone who has made some very practical decisions in the ballot box myself, I really empathize with this idea that in the end, you want your vote to do something. You want your vote to change the world. You want your vote to affect policy. And sometimes the way that it changes the world is not by always voting for the person you love the most. I mean, that's something that a lot of um, people who are political independents have to grapple with every year is like, um, if I think that, you know, and and I would say that there's broadly speaking, two types of political independents, those who are really strong um, and passionate about third parties and other ones who don't like the two party system, but will work within the structure of those candidates. But, you know, I guess what I would say is that um, in general, what the series does is it really brings to fore not only who some of these voting groups are, whether it's, you know, we're, we're going to do a piece coming up on Vietnamese Americans, very similar to Cuban Americans, and that the older generation is Republican, the younger is Democratic. Um, we've already spoken with blue collar Trump voters in Ohio and young African-Americans who aren't enchanted with Clinton. But what it really brings up is like this, this math between what's practical and what's desired. And there can sometimes be a very big gulf between that for voters. I mean, that's a, that's a question I have as you kind of watch, watch this all play out and watch this play out in, in numbers, right? Like there is a point where it, it kind of feels like that math is done, right? Like people have worked worked through whatever difficulty they have um, and are just saying, you know what, I gotta I gotta line it up and and put it where where I'm gonna do it. it is your sense that that most people have already done that equation or is that what the next you know four weeks looks like? 
I think most people have already done the math, but the people who haven't are definitely potential game changers. So it's one of these things where right now most people already have made up their minds, but but really the category to look at is independent voters and people who say that they're not going to vote because these are both categories that are being measured right now. And I think some of the people who are listed as voters right now could drop off, like if they were strongly supporting a candidate and had problems with that candidate, you know, most likely in this case right now to be likely Trump voters. But if something comes out about Clinton, that could change. Um, but really what's what's happening is that the people who are really firm are holding their ground. But I would say more than in past elections, a good 15 to 20 percent of people are either weakly supporting a candidate in a first party, supporting a third party candidate, or planning not to vote, but persuadable about that. Like if they really felt there was a call to action, they might actually leave the house and vote. But they're they're not the people who are not voting because they don't care. They're the people who are not voting because they do care. (laughs) It's like, I care enough to not vote for someone who I really, really dislike. When you've been traveling, I imagine this is a fascinating time to travel the country and meet and talk with people because it feels like America is all kind of electrified right now. Which oh, means for sure. Exciting. And if you step on it, it can kill you. It just has that. <laughs> what, what is what has most surprised you in in doing the series and traveling around right now? You know, there's a couple things. First of all, there is a level of depending on when you reach people excitement or despair that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, Among some of the Trump voters in Ohio, I got a real sense of passion and excitement that there was someone speaking to uh, what they saw as the needs of of, uh, not necessarily working class people, because not all of them were, but communities with that relied on blue collar jobs and communities that had been decimated by the declines in blue collar jobs. So I went to um, Trumbull County, Ohio, which is in the Mahoning Valley. And in the the greater area, there's a sort of tri-county region. Um, 42% of the manufacturing jobs disappeared between 2000 and 2014. And so that completely changes how people view things like, will my house still be worth enough when I retire so that if I need to move into an assisted living community, I can sell it. (laughs) You know, if the price of your house goes down 50%, Mm. that changes your retirement math, changes whether or not your kids, your grown kids are going to stay in the area. And there's a net out migration of people moving to other parts of Ohio or out of the state entirely because they want more opportunity. So it becomes, it becomes a really intense emotional experience. And when I spoke with the Trump voters, which that was earlier in the series, so it was well before the debates, they were really, you know, excited. And then um, when I spoke with uh, African American millennials, a lot of them were really just lukewarm. Like I remember, I remember once I didn't even put this in the piece, I went to Cleveland. And I was just randomly interviewing younger black women with children at an arts festival and a bunch of them were like we're going to write in sanders you know it's like because 
Clinton had won the primary, they were just like, we're going to write write Sanders in. And, and it's like overwhelmingly black, Latino and Asian millennials preferred Sanders to Clinton. And some of them still aren't playing ball with the Democratic Party. That's really interesting. I think one thing that that that's fascinating to me about the the series that you're doing and even even hearing these stories is you know this often feels like an election that is bringing out the absolute worst in people right just it is hard to touch this stuff sometimes because it it feels so toxic and yet it feels like you are kind of able to find you know humanity in all of this. And I'm just kind of curious about how you how you go about that. Well, I really do love people. And I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I feel I feel bad sometimes, because I know that even when I do a story that I consider fair and factual, it can hurt people's feelings. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely sure I know some of my interview subjects liked the pieces, and I'm pretty sure some of them didn't. Because when I email them, they just, you know, don't email back, although we've been in close contact. But I never try to make anyone into a stereotype because I don't believe, I mean, a lot of the early wisdom about who Trump supporters were was totally wrong. They're not poorer than most Americans. Um, They are less likely to be educated, but not less likely to... Um, have good homes, etc. There was this whole idea of kind of this beaten down, angry Trump majority. Well, I think that anger plays into some of it. um, But it's really more about this idea that there's been a changing of the guard in American culture, and a changing of the guard economically and the regions that some of these voters are from are losing out in the changing of the guard towards a more education, higher education focused, technologically sophisticated, um, multicultural America. And so that's, that's not going to end on November 9th. We're going to have to keep having all these conversations. So somebody better talk to, you know, everybody, because it's like, I do hear, I have to say, like a fair amount of um, dismissiveness among urban educated people about Trump voters. And I'm like, well, they have their reasons, you know, whether or not you agree with them, um, maybe try to understand those reasons before you just write everything off. Cause these are still, we're all still Americans and we're going to be Americans on November 9th. And so we better figure out how to have a conversation. You sound so, um, just wise, I have to say, and just, <laughs> I would have to say just calm, like humane, just you're you're coming at this. It seems like such a good place. Do you have a secret that we can that help? Because I know I feel <laughs> like someone has hit me on the back of the head with a hammer every day following this, and I know that you must follow it even more intensely. Do you have a way that you kind of cope with this? I, I've used the word volatile, electric situation. You seem to have processed it very well. Well. You know, first of all, thank you. Secondly, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I do think I've processed. I mean, for me, I look at the long haul, and part of it is that I've been covering groups like um, the Tea Party and sometimes even uh, racial extremists for years. And I have a pretty realistic sense of the breadth of 
American public opinion. And a lot of times when people pretend that we don't have problems, we're just in the pretending phase. Like we had an opiate problem in America long before people started tracking the opiate addiction crisis. We had race problems in America back when people were pretending we were a post-racial society. We're going to have some serious gender problems um, following this election, not because gender itself has gotten worse, but because gender has come to the forefront of our minds as a category. And so I do think I'm pragmatic about the, the different ways human beings act. And I can appreciate how people make decisions, because I really feel like um, whether or not I think that their thought processes are correct, or correct is maybe the wrong word to put it. Sometimes I think people are very expedient as voters. There's a difference between being practical and expedient. Expedient to me is when you throw other people under the bus to achieve your aims. And so there is there are practical voters, ideological voters, and expedient voters who really just don't care that much about anyone's interests but their own. But but if you understand how people think, it's a little bit less upsetting. It's like you see the same patterns among voters as you do among your friends and your family. Humans are humans. Sometimes people are expedient. Sometimes people aren't nice. And I'm not saying this to be like, Pollyanna, it's more just like, this is the way people act. Why should we act differently when it comes to an election? That's some, that's some heavy wisdom. Um, it, it's because it has been so hard to be kind of rational about this. It seems like in a lot of times, rational, compassionate responses have kind of gone out the window because we're all a little upset all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, there's been some, some studies by psychologists that um, this election and this kind of rhetoric on both sides activates the toddler brain that just wants to say, I want it my way and no, 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 no. And we're not really using our higher level thinking. And that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I'd want to see more data on whether or not that's the case, but I do think it takes people back. I'm actually going to participate in a conference um, that's being held at MIT on, it has to do with race and neuropsychology, but there's a lot of evidence that certain patterns are very much hardwired into how we view class and social status. And that's one thing that I believe is driving this election. You know, if you view, for example, working class people of different races as being theoretically on the same team because they have a shared set of interest about um, what working class people need, that's not something you see in American political behavior. You see a lot of infighting as opposed to collaboration, particularly around race. But if you understand things somewhat differently and understand how important social status is to human beings, and that can be measured and has been measured in political science studies, economic studies, um, neuropsychology studies, then you understand why groups of people who are seemingly similar often compete because they still want that status advantage. And so to me, that's that's very unsatisfying because I could I believe that we could build a better world through coalitions. But if you understand human beings seek higher status and consistently in all sorts of studies will, in fact, choose higher status over greater gain. So, for example, you know, in some studies, people are offered a sum of money, let's say one hundred dollars, if another person in the study can get the hundred dollars but they will choose to take less money if the other person gets even less. 
you know, because it's about status. status. And so I think right now, also just understanding that status is really important to Americans and, um, you know, some people feel like their status in America is dropping. And I think that goes along race, gender lines, um, class lines. And we are in some ways seeing white working class men as a group that is behaving in ways that are consistent with this kind of status-based math around politics. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say is, is we can't talk about status in America without talking about race and gender, right, and class. Um, and so I'm I'm curious how, you know, you you a bit ago talked about job loss in in Ohio and, uh, you know, along the man in the manufacturing sector and things like that. But I'm curious about how is it even possible to disentangle economic factors from racial factors or with Hillary Clinton as the the Democratic nominee from from factors of gender as well, you know, and, and how do we. I mean, it, it sort of feels with this election that that we are being forced to stare at every of America's horribles in the face at once. Right. And like, how do we how do we move to useful conversations? Like you said, uh, you know, come November 9th, how do we how do we move to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, this I'm really hoping at least that will acknowledge that this election didn't really come out of nowhere and that these were some long festering resentments. And I do think that white working class Americans do have a lot of legitimate um, concerns about how well they are being represented by either party. So first of all, it's worth just saying, you know, kind of as a country after the election, we have to not shut down do some assessments on how different groups of Americans are faring. And it's not about separating race and gender and class. It's about saying, okay, all of these are dynamic pressures on the system. And who's doing particularly well? I mean, I think that Donald Trump's uh, taxes coming out indicates that, that government regulations on taxation have really changed the math for working in middle class Americans. And you can see it in charts that look at, at, you know, income and wealth over time. Basically, there's been kind of a hockey stick effect where with between taxation and compensation, corporate compensation, the top quintile of Americans has really taken off. And then the second to top quintile is, you know, kind of moving up a bit. And then there's almost a flat line for the bottom three quintiles of income in America. It's like people just aren't experiencing the, quote, American dream um, by and large. And so we're just going to have to have a discussion like, well, what does the American dream mean? Who gets to participate in it if it's if it's no longer um, strictly segregated by race or or gender? And of course, that's not completely true, but, you know, at least legally, um, we're not supposed to have race and gender play into meritocracy, what still remains to be done? And, you know, this is getting far off of the election, but I think that <laughs> the point the point is that during the election, um, understandably, people are doing a math that's influenced by their own personal stake in the election, and everyone's stake is different. And it's not always apparent. Like, if you see, 
if you see a white guy walking down the street, he could have a non-white kid, and you don't know anything about that. And there's, it's worth noting that there's a lot of families now that are multiracial by marriage, birth, and adoption, and who may look at the implications of race in this election somewhat differently because of their um, family relations. And I think that we're just becoming, we're becoming more class segregated as a society, you know, where rich people live with rich people and poor people live with poor people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in some ways, slowly, we're still becoming more racially integrated among extended families and things like that. So we can, we can solve this all in the next four weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, I think what you're saying, I mean, I appreciate you calling me wise, but I think it's, it's more that I'm an observer. And I really try to observe as many types of people as I can, you know, the immigrant demographics, native born demographics, um, people of different classes. And so just get out of your box, you know, everybody needs to like, everybody's kind of hunkered down right now, because they're a little afraid of what's going to happen. And there may be reasons for that. Um, I do think that there could be um, a period of disgruntlement and even occasional unrest after the election, depending on how things go, because people are really wound up. But try not to be one of those people. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, we tried to make a podcast in order to do something about how we felt and also to try to our our goal uh, was to promote calm give information and also tips on stress eating. Um, We've asked everybody, you know, how do they cope? And, you know, Anna Marie Cox says, well, I exercise and I spend time with my pets and prayer and meditation. And Chris Hayes chomps away on some really sweet sugar-free gum. You know, everybody seems yesterday. Oh yeah. He seemed, he's like, yeah, I just chew packs and packs of it. He's chewing gum all the time. (laughs) It seems like yours is just the most wholesome, which is talking to people. Yeah, and, but also you know, there's been a lot of sugar, a lot oh, of yeah, chocolate, okay. a lot of brownies, a lot of yeah, way more sugar than usual, which I have to dial back. I knew there had to, I knew there had to be something. Of course. Oh yeah. Way I more bought, sugar. I bought two pints of ice cream that I thought had to last until the election and that that didn't work <laughs> out. So you bought you bought them already to yeah. last till the election. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> I know. I thought I could do it. I really thought because I eat it fairly slowly and then they're already gone. So, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's like it's I'm trying not to beat myself up about it. I mean, I do need to dial back on the the sugars, but it's it is a weird time. And I think also it's like some people's families and some people's workplaces or churches or places of worship or whatever are also places where all this stuff gets played out. And it's worth remembering Sometimes you can't convert the world. No matter what you believe in, it may not be your day to try to convert everybody. Like there was a young woman who I met who's, um, she's gay from a working class family, white family. And she's like, my mom's voting for Trump. I don't know what to do. And I was like, maybe wait to talk to her after the election. It sounds like you guys have already done 14 rounds in the ring. If I, if I thought that there was a different kind of conversation you were going to have, I might advise you differently. But right now, maybe you just both need to, like, watch Matlock and drink tea, you know? <laughs> and we all need to do that. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. 
Farai, thank you so much for uh, for taking the the time to chat with us today. It is it is. I think I think Maureen, do you agree? Of the of the four conversations we've had, this is the one that I actually like genuinely feel warm and nice inside from. This is the most humane and compassionate one for sure. Aww. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing with us because it is it is very welcome. Uh, for I for I's newest book is the episodic career coming out in paperback very soon. You can follow her ongoing series about voters at five thirty eight dot com slash the voters. Fry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan and Maureen. It's been great. That's it for this episode of Says Who. We'll be back next Wednesday, October 12th, for wrap-up of debate number two. And whatever fallout comes from that. Oh, that's going to be nice. Very pleasant. You know, Dan, Trump keeps saying that he'll be meaner this time. Which is good because I definitely think that was everyone's big takeaway from the first one, you know, is that it was really lacking in meanness. Oh, definitely. I believe it was the Pew Research Center poll that pointed to the only fault in the debate being its total civility. Yeah. So they're going to do away with that, which is going to be great. You know, I think I'm going to go back to listening to my audiobooks. Baha, you do. Here, you might like this one. It's called Miss Manners Guide to Tremendously Dignified Debates. Chapter 1. Common Courtesy Upon the Debate Stage. Debates these days range from perfunctory to perfectly dreadful. It is only right and proper, then, when faced with a faulty microphone and a case of the sniffs, to wait until the second debate to accuse your opponent's husband of... ...with a dreadful... ...which sounds fun. But isn't. Maureen, Maureen, stop. We need to finish this podcast. Can you can you just get back to those weird, fake audiobook stories later? All right, all right. Hey, listeners, maybe you have questions. Maybe there's something you'd like us to discuss. Maybe you just like making friends with podcasts. Well, just reach out. Get in touch with us. We're on Twitter at Says Who Podcast. We're on Facebook at slash Says Who Podcast. And we're just on the plain old internet at Says Who Podcast.com. And really, thank you, everyone that is listening and everyone that is spreading the word. We are two people that are really just trying to cope. And we bring in people much smarter than us to help us do that. And we love the fact that there are a bunch of you now that kind of appreciate this approach. So thank you so much. Continue to tell your friends, and if you do listen to the podcast through iTunes, leave us a review, because those matter a whole bunch. Thank you. And thanks to Simon Cole, our audiobook narrator. Simon is an actor and voiceover artist located in London, as well as a professor of vocal studies at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. You can find out more about Simon at simoncole.co.uk. Our theme music comes courtesy of Ted Leo, whose November tour dates are up now at tedleotour.tumblr.com. And the Says Who logo was made by the one and only Darth. That's at Darth on Twitter. From my basement in Chicago, I'm Dan Sinker. And from my closet in New York, I'm Maureen Johnson. A billion dollars, Maureen. A billion dollars. And he lost it on casinos. Casinos, Dan. It's like, you know how someone has a great idea for a business and they say, it'll be like minting money. That's what a casino is. 
It makes money. That's, it just makes money. How do you lose a billion dollars when all you do is take people's money and give them less money back? That's what makes him smart, right? No, no, no. That is not the word I would use. Tremendous. No, not that one either. I mean, it just seems to me that if you're a business person or a casino owner, you have one job, and that job is to make money. It does seem like making money is the your hands must be this big to enter bar to ride the business person coaster. Which is not a ride I would ride. Losing a billion dollars is not an accomplishment. Not paying tax for 18 years is not an accomplishment. None of these things are accomplishments. Oh, yeah? Says who? Chapter 2. Bitches. 